Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Whiteboard Podcast. Whiteboard is a podcast that invites recent design grads to be candid about their experience in design education and building their career in creative industries. We are also visited by industry professionals willing to share their wisdom on getting started in creative advertising and the related fields. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Whiteboard Podcast. The guest today is Mark Jenkinson. Mark graduated from Humber College's Advertising and Graphic Design program in 2012. And the first few years of his career were spent at various digital agencies in Toronto, like Navigator, Article, and Nascent, working first as a graphic designer, then as a UI UX designer, and eventually as a product designer. In 2016, Mark joined Trello as a product designer, where he has been for the last seven years. During that time, Mark worked both as a product designer and as a design manager. After seven years at Trello, Mark has recently left and is now taking a career sabbatical before determining what to do next. Thank you uh, very much, Mark. It's so good to talk to you again. It's so good to see you again. Yeah, thanks for having me, Eric. Well, the reason I thought it would be great to have you on the podcast is because we are primarily a advertising and graphic design program, as the name would suggest. Right. Right. But, you know, we so many students who, once they're kind of exposed to the wider world of design, they say, oh, maybe I want to do web. Maybe I want to do UX. And now maybe I want to do product. And so thought uh, maybe you could kind of let us know what the difference is sort of between web, UX, UI, product, but also how someone who studied something sort of adjacent to that can transform their future and, you know, find themselves in, in, in that career path. Definitely. I think for me, it was something that I stumbled into. I started off in the advertising graphic design program, maybe headed towards more of a traditional graphic design pathway and sort of through people and connections and opportunity ended up in UI UX. I think a lot of people around my age um, who entered the industry around 10, 15 years ago have a similar story. There weren't explicit UI UX courses at the time. Now there are. So, and it's, it's kind of cool. Like a lot of my colleagues have like philosophy degrees and then sort of like maybe took a boot camp or like learned themselves. Um, for me, I, I learned a lot of like design fundamentals at school. And then my first job was maybe more graphic design, traditional graphic design. And then my second job was more UI UX. So I learned on the job and sort of figured it out as I went. A decade ago, I don't think there were, there might have been UX programs, but I read a statistic on like a Nielsen Norman group thing where it said basically in 1990, there were three UX designers in the world. And then in 2000, there was 300. And then um, in 2010, there was like 30,000. And now there's like 3 million or like, you know, it's something yeah. like that. Yeah, it must be interesting for you to having work or now working at Humber to see sort of a, what I imagine is a uh, transformation of the program uh, to some extent. There's just a lot more uh, to learn now in the classroom. You're, you're so right. It's, it's super challenging. I mean, we don't we, we don't go too deep into web. We do one semester in Figma doing a, just a typical e-commerce homepage, category page, product item page, cart page sort of thing, um, mm -hmm. just because. That's a nice framework to, to get the basics. Yeah. But I'm kind of more interested in whatever your education is. How did you get steered into the more digital end? I was listening to some of your previous episodes and you talked a little bit about like how you really can't predict your pathway. 
And I really resonated with that just because when I look back in my career, I could not have predicted where I'm at today, 12 years ago when I graduated. It really was a series of steps and opportunities and relationships that sort of like one step at a time took me to the next thing to be the next thing. Uh, when I was at school at Humber, um, my roommate was a very talented engineer and he just had such a passion for what he was doing and really shared that passion with me. And my portfolio graduating from Humber ended up leaning much more towards UI UX kind of just because of him and, and sort of like the passion that he should shared with me. And it, it seemed like at the time too, and maybe still kind of is, there was a lot of excitement around tech UI UX as this like new frontier where uh, you had sort of like younger people making their own decisions on, on how they want to build their companies and how they want to build their product. And that really appealed to me. And I think um, as opportunities came up, I just tried to like really lean into that. So it was, it was a friend that I met who was my roommate, sort of ended up sharing some of his passion with me, got my first job, and then uh, ended up sharing stuff on Dribble, which then led to my first UI UX job. And then I ended up getting involved with HackerU, which is now Juno College. Through that, I got sort of my second job. So it was really like, I just could not have predicted sort of the way that I ended up here. And it, it was just, yeah, me learning um, as I went and uh, meeting people who um, inspired me to continue. You started working as a graphic design and then within a workplace, your role kind of shifted. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, I, so I worked at this place called Navigator, which still exists. It was a PR firm. They just took on clients and kind of like did whatever that client needed. So week to week, I would be working on very different kinds of projects. And some of them would require like a landing page for some initiative. So I found myself doing sort of website design, really without knowing anything about what it looks like to create a website. Like, um, I'm just looking or thinking about the skills that I learned at Humber, what I believe in as a designer, a graphic designer, and trying to apply it to the web website, web space, digital space. And man, I made so many mistakes, but it was, um, I had a bit of like a safe environment to kind of try things out and, and learn as I went. But when I look back to some of the early things that I made that they really were not great, Oh yeah, such a different time where you could kind of just like, everyone was sort of feeling it out, I think, and learning as they went. What about the growth of development knowledge at the same time? Was that a thing or were you just purely focused on the design? I quickly learned that I needed to have understanding around just simple sort of CSS, HTML to be able to like have a conversation with the one engineer who I worked with at that time which is how I ended up being connected with HackerU, now Juno College. I took like a little front-end course, learned a ton, and sort of still um, appreciate the skills that I learned at that time. Yeah, I needed to know just enough to kind of be able to have a conversation. And I think now the I need to be able to know enough to do some like design QA type stuff where I can hit someone, sends me what they're working on, or sends me a link to staging, I should be able to go in there, open up the inspector and like play around with things just because it saves a lot of time. And it can be demotivating for an engineer when you're like asking them to jump on a Zoom call and getting them to nudge things around one pixel at a time. So if right. I can do a lot of that on my end and then share the notes backwards uh, back to them, that that uh, just helps everybody. Let me tell you what I 
think you're saying and then you'll tell me if I've got it right. I love it. Okay. So maybe a developer sends you a card and it's it's a typical card. There's a product image at top and then underneath is an H2 and then there's some body. And you right click and you inspect and you add a little bit more margin between the headings. And then you're like, can we get it like this? Mm -hmm. Is that kind of what you mean? Absolutely. Yeah, that's totally it. Okay, cool. So, okay, good. So um, for anyone listening, that's very doable. <laughs> and don't be intimidated. I just say that because a lot of people right away, they just kind of shut out. I can never do it, right? And so what are some of the other conversations early on pre-development stage before there's anything to inspect? Conversations with the developer about maybe um, responsive design and, and are they looking at it, your work in say Figma and saying, what's going to happen when, you know, when we hit this a certain breakpoint, for example? I, I care very much whenever I'm working on a team about bringing everybody along for the ride from the very beginning, especially if they're interested. I, I think that like oftentimes engineers can be treated as like just the monkeys that, you know, you throw your design over the fence and they need to execute and they need to do all the things. And I think that just never feels. And I think that we felt that way as designers too, where something's thrown over the fence to you. So the more you can involve people earlier on, the better things end up being. And it just makes sense. Like you build things better when you have diverse perspectives on the problem. So even more so than like, let's talk about how we might build this in a responsive way. I love to bring engineers into like conversations with customers and like conversations with product leaders where we're like thinking about and trying to determine if we're solving the right problem. And they just catch things that you really don't. Like when you have an engineering perspective, you'll maybe be reminded of a product that you've used recently that has done this really well, or like a pattern or an example that like could come into play. So earlier, the better with like everything, right? Um, uh, so, so yes, like having, talking to them about like, should this be like responsive? Should we build it using this pattern or this pattern is right, but then also like a step beyond that can can really benefit things. I guess moving into a management position, having sort of an, a man of knowledge of every what everyone on your team is doing is probably also pretty useful. Definitely. So um, product design, what does that mean? Yeah, it's such a good question. I think that the world of UI UX for design has had a bit of a branding crisis for a while. There's been a lot of names and titles. When I say product design, I think about facilitating the creation or modification of quality experiences for a digital product. Whenever I'm talking to someone that is really far away from this area of work and I say I'm a product designer, they're like, oh, you know, what kind of furniture do you build? So it's kind of a weird title, but it's a digital product. And I say creation or modification because I think that oftentimes what, what the work is, is you're optimizing for something that already exists. So you have like a notification panel that is not working the way customers want it to work, or you have an onboarding flow that really isn't selling the paid version of the product. So you're kind of going in and updating it. And in my experience, there's not a lot of like net new creation, or there's a lot less net new creation. And then I would say... To, to help uh, qualify the quality piece of it, when we say quality, it's like improving ease of use, improving the visual design, improving performance and reliability and accessibility, which is not so often sort of 
associated with design work, but it definitely is. And then maybe like delight as well, which is usually something that people think of. That's awesome. So it really is the full picture. Definitely. It's end to end. And I have realized in my work that designers, maybe partly because of who we often tend to be, I think we're very like empathetic, creative people with interpersonal skills. Uh, just It just is that way. We tend to be like people who help with like building the team up and creating process and to some extent like making sure everyone's happy and like loving their job. At least that's how I feel. So it really is all over the place. Like I, when I was a manager, I did a lot of like growth conversations with people where you kind of look at like a spread of capabilities that one designer could have and it's immense. Like it's kind of this huge spread of different things and only like a few of them are the things you learn in school where it's visual design or like interaction design uh the rest is kind of is this spread of soft skills that you don't often think about it's so true uh you know many many people can make illustrator go and do things it's less and less important actually with ai sort of democratizing those tools it's really going to boil down to do you know how to make people happy in a very, very broad sense? Um, yeah. Fulfilled even, I think, might be a better word than happy. Totally. And that's kind of the thing you don't think about when you're starting your career, necessarily. I think you're very focused on technical skills. But like at Humber, like we would do a lot of open critique where you're sharing your thoughts about other people's work and receiving feedback. And that kind of stuff is actually like super critical, I think, to being a, a strong employee wherever you end up. It's like how you talk to people and how you work with people and, and how you work as a team that are sort of like the critical skills. And I think they're a lot harder to learn, to be honest, than maybe like Illustrator, you know? I mean, definitely, because it's something like Illustrator. It's like, this is how a Bezier curve works. And eventually you'll figure it out, right? This is, yeah. this is the button you press to make the handle go this way and be a corner or not a corner or a curve or whatever. But how do you tell someone, here's how you can improve, or here's how I see it, and why I see it that way? That's difficult. So difficult. How do you move through a disagreement? Um, right. How do you make a decision? Uh, it's tough. Yeah. And especially when you're new and, you know, you have imposter syndrome sitting on your shoulders. Sure. You know, and you're, you're tasked with delivering something in the midst of, like, a variety of different voices. Sometimes as a designer, you're kind of caught in the middle of these parties and there's a product owner who sees it one way and the, the user see it another way and your designer sees it another way and it's kind of like, oh dear. I think that's another area where it's interesting to think about the differences between maybe like UI, UX design, product design and, and sort of like more of a traditional graphic design world. Stop me if you feel differently. It's been a while since I've been in that space, but uh, like you just described, I think there's sort of three audiences that you're often thinking about whenever you're creating something. So there's you and your vision. There's the person who pays you, right? Your employer, whoever, the client. And then there's the audience, the person who's going to see and experience this thing. And I think in the world of product design, the audience tends to be the one of the bigger voices in the room. And I think that you have the luxury of data, you know, like, research. Um, maybe you're building an experience over a very long period of time. So you're always checking in with people. You're working with a data scientist and you can understand how they're using some things. You've got a lot of insight into what they think and what they care about. And that becomes like a great 
neutralizer for some voices in the room. Like if you if you're working for an employer who has a very strong point of view and you're trying to move something forward, oftentimes you'll lean on data and what your audience is telling you to sort of neutralize what they're saying or at least share information so they can see it the same way you do. And I think in shorter turnarounds or in maybe more traditional design worlds, you don't have that luxury. So the it can be harder maybe uh, to fight for what you think is right when you're kind of just in the subjective world where it's someone else's opinion versus yours and you don't have data to kind of lean on and, and move something forward. Yeah, I, I, okay, I can maybe, maybe put an example out there when I just happened to stumble across recently. Uh, it's an Apple story, and I hate to use Apple stories because everyone does, but it's got the strong leader component and the designer component and the user component. So, um, yeah, 2006, they're about to launch the iPhone in a year, iPhone 1, and they're going with a plastic screen. And they're going with a plastic screen because when you drop your phone, plastic doesn't shatter. And the first generation of iPhones ended up being glass, which, of course, does shatter. And so Jobs wanted, Jobs the manager, Steve Jobs, wanted um, plastic screens because they were more durable. And that was kind of the bottom line. People dropped their phones, and we don't want to get bad press about that. But the designers um, eventually kind of were advocating for glass screens. The final reason was that if you put a phone in your purse or if you put a phone in your pocket, that's normal use. That's how, what people do. But if there's skis or change in your pocket, plastic will scratch. If you drop your phone, that's not normal use. It's air quotes your fault for dropping your mm -hmm. phone. Mm -hmm. So if, if you shatter the glass, that's your fault. If you scratch it, a plastic, that's Apple's fault. Um, and so this argument, I suppose, this perspective um, changed Jobs' mind. So it, whether, whether wherever you stand on this in the long term, I don't know what the right choice was, but it was this intersection sort of, of user and manager and designer sort of all coming together. It's so important to be like listening to the audience. And I think um, it's, a, it's a luxury really to like have that insight so you're not just like shooting from the hip or, or listening to the loudest voice in the room. I, I work on a lot of small teams, especially when I'm doing web design projects. And a lot of times we don't have access to a significant amount of data, right? We have basically maybe one or two people who use the thing talking to us and the manager or the product owner. So I guess uh, what are some what are some tools you can use if you don't have lots of data um, for shaping a, a product? Research can be intimidating for people who haven't studied how to be a researcher. But um, there's a lot of resources out there to sort of help you get started. If you are working at a small company, a team that doesn't have researchers or doesn't really like value research, you can be really in for a bit of a fight. I've often found that like it's the first thing to get cut because you just need to go quickly and we already know what to do and this is the thing, let's do it. And so knowing when to like slow things down and pitch for time to like connect with somebody who is using this product, who is experiencing this thing is a skill to learn, um, sort of like a, a spidey sense. I think there can be times where you're like, yeah, like this is pretty obvious. Let's just let's just go for it. But if you have that like inkling where you're like, I think we need to learn a little bit more making time to connect with a real person and asking them about their experience with what you're building can be so immensely helpful. 
And I mean, you don't need a tool to do that. You could meet someone in real life. You could um, hop on Zoom with someone far away, ask family, friends, even if you're strapped for like finding someone who's willing to give you your time. I think as a designer now, I, after seeing the value of that, it's something that I require to do my job. So I know when I have to ask for it and sort of demand it, um, because if I don't feel like I can do my job without it, I, I need it. So it's so case by case because every company's different, every scenario is different, but um, having some signal from a customer or a person, even if it's like just a friend to give you like a gut check um, with fresh set of eyes. Mm -hmm. the, the challenge I think in smaller scenarios is um, knowing when, like looking for patterns and insights. You don't wanna just like do what they tell you. And if you're only talking to like one or two people, it can be tempting to just take that insight as absolute truth. The yeah. you know ideal scenario is you're meeting with like six to 10 people and you have enough information to get a signal. Um, so if you can only talk to a couple people, just make sure that like grain of, uh, you're taking what they say with a grain of sand, grain of salt, whatever that saying is, um, and, um, and putting your critical thinking hat and, and kind of interpreting it and using what's valuable and leaving what's not. The reason I asked what some tools you use to inform your, your product and your UX design choices when there's no data is because a lot of designers coming from the print design and the traditional design world will find themselves on teams where they are being asked to do big UX things or big product things without the support of a, of a product-focused team mm. or a UX-focused team. And so yeah. it was like, hey, we need you to completely understand this huge picture and design for it in a way that you know understands uh, the huge picture. But we're not giving you any resources to do that. Right. Yeah, I know. It's like, I think that's a very common pathway, especially at startups where you're expected to do absolutely right. everything. And so you can see it as an opportunity to learn. Um, and uh, I do think that like, I mean, if you're in like a safe environment where you can do so, the, the fact that like this is a maybe a larger effort or something new for you is maybe worth it because I, I, mean, I took a lot of big swings and pretended like I knew everything. And I think it would have been a lot better if I asked for help and sort of expressed where I'm at in my career. You know, I'm excited to learn, excited to do this, but hey, like this is a big undertaking and um, I, I need to figure this out maybe with, with the team. If you're not the kind of person who just goes for it, then it's hard to grow, especially grow across domains. Um, so like on the one hand, you're like, oh, you know, I, I should have done better. I should have done things differently or I should have understood what I didn't understand. Um, but at the same time, if you don't have a bit of boldness, you're just going to be doing what you're doing and you, there's no growth. Yes. Yeah, so don't be so hard on yourself, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I do exactly. also, I do also totally appreciate if, if this is what you're saying, there's so much you don't know until you make the mistake. And maybe if you could mm -hmm. find someone who could get in front of that for you. Partnerships, making friends, all of this stuff really helps when you're figuring it out. Um, you need, you need, uh, need people to support you when you right. don't know. Are you, are you able to describe day in the life of product design? So at Trello, well, Trello was acquired by Atlassian, which owns like Jira and Confluence and some of these other products, maybe about a year after I joined. So primarily I worked on, on Trello, but I worked for Atlassian. And Atlassian has a, uh, a process that they talk about online, a development process. Um, and it starts with a the kickoff, then you sort of enter like a wonder explore phase. 
and then you're in make where you're building the thing, testing the thing um, in sort of like a live environment. And then their final stage is like impact where you're evaluating whether or not the thing did what you hoped it would do. Uh, so I think that is like a pretty common design process, sort of like the double diamond uh, or where you're just like discovery, yep. create um, with some sort of like feedback loop in there. And uh, day in life, it kind of depends on where I'm at along that, where my team is at. Most projects that I work on, the turnaround time or completion would be as short as three months and as long as like two years, honestly. So you could be in one of these cycles for, for months or for weeks, um, maybe even for like a year, which is nuts and not, not super enjoyable, but it does happen. So earlier phases, uh, if I'm just kind of getting into a project with a team, I might be writing sort of a, uh, an outline of what we know, what we don't know. I might be crafting a, a research proposal, talking to customers. I'm probably in Figma, trying a lot of things out early on and sharing that back with the team and getting feedback and, and um, just sort of testing stuff out. And then moving forward, once um, you're less the driver and the engineering lead or the engineering team, team is more the driver, you're doing a lot of like smaller explorations where hopefully you have a good relationship with your engineering team and they're like, hey, this thing that you were kind of thinking about, you know, I think it actually would be better if we, we pared it down or we use a different pattern. Um, so then you're kind of spinning off different explorations on smaller smaller pieces. And then probably near the end or maybe throughout, you are running some sort of early access program, beta program, something where you can get it in the hands of customers. You're talking with them. You're finding out how many mistakes you made and how many things you'd like to change. And then uh, you're making updates sort of as you go. Um, so that's kind of like the core thread of it. I think there's like a larger thread that is very common, I think, at larger tech companies, which is you are just talking about the work to other people continually. So you're you're sharing progress on the work with your immediate leaders. You find out there's other teams doing similar work, and then you're suddenly like trying to split hairs on what you're doing versus them. I mean, or or like the the mission changes. Like that's just happened so common. Like where you've started something, you're six months in, and you're and then there's an economic downturn, or like COVID hits, and everyone's remote. I don't know. Like there's always stuff, and those are big examples, but there's also yeah. smaller examples. So you're kind of always pivoting. Um, so that core thread that I first mentioned on is kind of like right. the easy thread. It's like it's like the predictable one where you sort of know when to explore, when to refine, when to try to aim to deliver and then there's this larger one that is more unpredictable and you're really leaning into those soft skills where you're like having meetings presenting sharing context fighting for your work making sacrifices continually that's like it's almost probably like a 80 20 or like a 60 40 split where most of my time is on talking about the work than it often is like the work but they are kind of one in the same because ultimately you want to deliver this thing so it's about people as much as it is about the thing. Yes, yeah. yes. That's cool. Yeah, institute and institutional friction. It's something that exists like everywhere, right? Like it's not just in, in product design. You're going to encounter it anywhere. I don't want people to feel like, wait, I'll never be designing. It's like, no, you will. Yeah. Are you able to talk about like what sort of products? So Trello and the rest of the Alassian products are kind of all around like team collaboration. So Trello is a really simple product. If you haven't used it, it's been around for a while. It's just about like, moving cards 
across lists in this Kanban. It's a super simple tool, but it's been around forever. So a lot of what we have been doing is just sort of optimizing, like I said. It's been an amazing product to work on because it's there's a lot of people who are huge fans of it. And you connect with people who love the product and makes you feel good and makes you feel like you're doing important work. Um, but yeah, it's all around like productivity. It's about um, either you yourself or you and your team getting stuff done and how you build a product that enables people to get stuff done. So we think about the, the individual framework. So people like will plan their weddings or plan trips or just use it for like my weekly to do. Um, but then there's also people using Trello for like uh, planning their sprints and running their Etsy shops and stuff like that. And do you do a lot of customizations for specific clients of Trello? We have an enterprise product. And sometimes very large enterprise people, customers will request certain things. And I think that's pretty common. You'll, you'll um, try to build something for that group. But for the most part, you are trying to, to build for everybody, which is a very challenging challenge <laughs> where uh, everybody uses Trello to totally different. So how do you build notifications for somebody who is planning their trip versus running their small business? It's such a different use case. So it's it's quite hard. Um, as a design team, where we were often thinking about all of these various personas um, all the time, which can be sometimes debilitating, but you know, it's part of the part of the gig. People just start using it in ways you kind of didn't expect. Yeah. And then your reaction is, okay, well let's let's continue to capture this this, this persona. I'm interested to hear what you think about very large, flexible products that are in it become complex versus uh, targeted products that are simple, but uh, kind of just do one thing, the sort of the steam whistle answer versus the, uh, like the, the Molson Coors Anheuser-Busch answer to product design. <laughs> That's a really good question. I think that great products are built by a thousand no's. Um, and I think that it is very important to continually remind yourself that like, continually to return to what the product is and what it's looking to achieve. It's so common where something will grow and expand and become all things, but it hits some point of being confusing. Like I have, uh, I can read a book on my iPad, but I love reading on my e-reader. Like the single use of it, um, I pick it up and I can go to the, go to a comfy chair and I know I'm not going to get distracted by something else. And uh, I think that like you want to do one thing really well, then a million things okay. I yeah, that's kind of where I stand on it. Um, product definition is is so important. My my instinct is always no. I just want. Oh man, it's so weird. Actually, I don't think I have a, like a defined stance on this because if I think about something like a knife, I just want an eight inch chef knife, and that's what I'll use for everything in the kitchen. I don't need a paring knife. I don't need a boning knife, whatever, right? Mm. But um, in my wood shop, it's like, no, I need these specific kinds of saws to cut these specific kinds of materials. And I would never want some kind of multi-saw that cuts everything. I love the fact that my iPhone does every, like everything except make phone calls now. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's a really hard question. I guess it's the flexibility, usability trade-off. Yeah. And I'm constantly struggling with it. Even Even if I write an assignment for students, I'm like, Okay, I'll just get like a super specific assignment, but then it's like, well, what's the point? Because it's so prescriptive that. Um, but then if it's like, just do whatever you want, it's kind of like, well, then what should I do? I'm sure there is examples where the opposite is true. Um, 
I think just specifically for product design, like it's a trap that so many companies fall into where they try to do everything. Yeah. And you can see them expanding and, and entering new areas and it starts to get confusing, I think, for the customer. It's such an interesting topic. And then, yeah, the, the other side of it is like how opinionated is the product. Right. Um, like it, the one thing that Trello, uh, I think, wrestled with during my time there is being opinionated about what, what it is you should use it for. Um, like, I think we've always had a sort of a somewhat design principle around flexibility where we love that it's like Lego blocks that you can build and customize, but it's a double-edged sword. The other side of that is you don't know its full capabilities. Or often we talk to customers and they'd say, I don't think I'm using this right. There would be sort of this insecurity because they were never told the right way. Um, it's like if you got a, yeah, if you got like a Lego box without a picture of what you're building, you could probably build some cool stuff, maybe some things that'll make you happy, do what you want to do. But will you know that it was the best version? We try to get around that with templates and maybe more guided onboarding, but it's, it's tricky. Like there should be a word for that sort of user uncertainty. Mm. And what if there's leftover Lego pieces that you just, they're, they're always there. You've never used them, but they're, they're always in right. the bottom of the box for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I feel like that was so much software. Like, just think about your operating system. There's so many things in there which you'll never touch. You don't even know they're there yeah. to be used. You, you know, you don't even hear them jingling in the bottom of the box. Yeah. Operating system is a bad example, but like even InDesign. Yeah. There are tools in InDesign, which in, in 10 years, I'll, I've never used them. I don't even know what they are. And I think it does create a sense of insecurity. I think it prevents people from feeling like they've mastered the product. They've got stuff in there and InDesign and Illustrator for everybody. But because you don't know what some of these things do for you, you're always kind of wondering if you're getting the most out of the tool. If you open that Lego box and there's one golden piece at the bottom, are you like, shit, I should have found a way to use this, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it's kind of like you built Iron Man, and then there's nowhere to put the the thing in the in the the glowing thing in the chest, right? Like it's uh -huh. there, and you're like, yeah, and you're like, but I did I yeah. want it? Did I want the glowing thing in the chest? Yeah. I mean, I guess some some solutions are like workspaces, right? So when you're in InDesign, you can choose to be in the proofing workspace or the um, typography workspace or uh, whatever the other workspaces are, and then so perhaps. If you are a typographer and you work in editorial, you set it to the typography workspace and you never change it because this is basically defining your wheelhouse. I don't know, maybe there's like some opportunity to make people feel like they're not missing anything that they shouldn't not miss. Yeah, I think there is an opportunity there. We should start a business and make new yeah. 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 If you were going to evaluate a final product or, for example, a portfolio piece or a case study, as manager, maybe looking to hire a junior, what what are some of the ways you evaluate that? How do you look at someone's portfolio and say, this person is, you know, the kind of person I'm looking for? For a UI UX type role, um, you'll have to have the fundamentals in there. I'll be looking for a problem statement. What is it that you're looking to change for who? Some of your process work, the outcome, you know, the basic stuff that needs to be in there. I think the thing to realize is that everyone else that's interviewing is going to have the same stuff. So anything that you can do to give me more insight, get me excited about the work will benefit you. I also I love it when people say what they hope I'll get out of it. Um, 
So, you know, I'm showing you this case study because I think it shows this skill of mine, this skill of mine, and hope that you take away this from, from me. Um, being sort of meta about the whole thing, I think, helps key up a really good case study. I think, uh, so when you're interviewing a lot of people back to back, maybe you felt this too. It's the same thing like over and over. And you can tell when someone is just reading from a script or has something memorized. I think the the better interviews are a little bit more conversational, a little bit more off the cuff than just listening to somebody talk. So practice what you're going to say, write down the, the important pieces to hit. But then once you're in there, try and have a discussion about the work. Take pauses, ask if the person has questions. That kind of thing really helps. This is not about case studies in particular, but I also really love, maybe this is pretty common now, but love it when people make time at the beginning of a portfolio review to talk about who they are as a person. What are their hobbies? You know, where do they live? What do they like to do? Let me connect with that person a little bit more. I think that that just goes a really long way. It's about people. It's about people. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, I, somebody said this to me recently, and I think it applies when you're applying for more senior positions later in your career and earlier in your career. The person that's hiring you just wants to know that by hiring you, they'll be able to get home on time. Like they want to know that you can do the job and, and not not like make them have to step in for you, right? So demonstrating confidence in cap your capabilities. If you can like communicate that in your tone and the way you deliver your work, I think it will go a really long way. Yeah. Well, and one thing I say that's that the hiring process is basically a risk mitigation heuristic. Mm -hmm. If you can figure out how that individual and the institution mitigate risk, you will you'll get hired. Or like, yeah, it'll be some other reason why you don't get hired. And one of the risks is not getting home on time. So how do you how do you portray <laughs> that you're the person who gets who gets everyone home on time? Uh, preparation is one way. You mentioned being kind of meta about it. And I'll share an example of when I saw that recently, it was a case study and it had, yeah, it had the usual beats, but then the kind of the hook was um, what I learned and what I would do differently. Yeah. And I was like, oh man, that's, that's good because um, it's like, you're showing that vulnerability, you're showing that willingness to grow, but it's also the thing that I, the evaluator didn't already know. Right. And it was like, wow, that, that's cool. Um, so yeah, super meta and um, showing growth and showing vulnerability, but in a way that somehow makes you strong. And it's another like kind of balancing act. I mean, you don't have to come out. Nobody expects you to be perfect. Showing vulnerability, showing that you're like, you can listen and, and move uh, from your mistakes is like a very human, real thing. I think if you get defensive or if you try to present an image of yourself that is flawless, it could count against you. Yeah, we, we call it the 9 out of 10 Photoshop paradox. Because mm. if you think you're a 9 out of 10 in Photoshop, you don't know enough about Photoshop. <laughs> oh. Well, because it's so deep, right? You might be a 9 uh -huh. out of 10 on drawing, but you're probably not 9 out of 10 on drawing, photo editing. Another, like I always like it when someone in, in an interview has something insightful or intelligent to say about the work done by the company they're applying for or to. But I guess that can be tricky, right? Because I guess you could kind of set yourself up to say something that's, I guess, wrong or maybe doesn't have the information to be as insightful as you think. When I've been on hiring panels in the past, you're kind of looking for an interest in the product and the company, right? Like, you know, obviously you're working to make money, but why would you choose this place over somewhere else? So demonstrating a little bit of interest 
goes a long way. I think what you're describing is is really interesting where you could almost have something like that in your back pocket where if you were like broaching the subject on how you've been a user for a while or a fan of the product for a while, a follow-up question may be, you know, like, what is your experience? What might you change? And then having that ready in response is a great idea. Um, but I think you're right. It can come off maybe on a, the wrong way. If you're like, and here's a slide on everything that I would change if I was in charge. Yeah. So uh, something to, to feel out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe you could say like, yeah, man, it's, it's really about people. You could just say like, you know, I notice sometimes this thing about the product and I'm just wondering like, yeah. what are some of the challenges involved there? Because I feel like it's a big, it's kind of a big beast to wrestle and they'll probably know right away what you're doing. I love that. Turning it into a question. That's, that's brilliant. It takes a little pressure off you too. Okay. So that's great about case studies and problem statements are something that, you know, you hear, oh, you have to, you first you define, develop, and then you define and you end up with a, how might we at the bottom of the diamond? Yeah. Is there anything you can unpack about those or demystify or like, like okay, what is the goal of a problem statement and why is a problem statement helpful or not? Really great question. It's critical when you're on a, a team working on a project. So you know what it is that you are looking to change as a result of the work and for who. I've worked on so many projects before where it's a big idea and everybody sort of has their own sense of what it is they're looking to change or what it is they're looking to create. And sometimes it's hidden. So you cutting specifically to the core problem, communicating that out and aligning on it will help you down the road because there's nothing worse than starting on something and realizing you're solving something that's a little bit different than what was expected of you or what a you know key stakeholder had in mind. So I think when working on anything, it's it's important to center around a problem. I think in an interview scenario, it's you only have a very short period of time to talk about the work. And so a, a well-written problem statement will bring people in quickly and, and get to the nugget of what it is that this work is all about. Uh, I think there's a variety of frameworks I found online. The one that I kind of come back to uh, thinking off the cuff here is like, it's how might we, and then it's sort of like a, some direction. So increase, decrease, gain adoption, try to make it as specific as you can of something, like some, some item for which group. So for this primary user and this secondary user. Right. And I, I like that because I think that it, the, the, the individual is important. Uh, if you're solving something when you haven't even like talked about who it's for yet, that's gonna emerge when you're writing this problem statement. You're like, oh, I like this is actually, I don't even know who we're building this for. Yeah. We should take a step back and think that through. And if you haven't thought through the thing you're looking to change, I think that the trap that a lot of designers fall into, I fall, fell, have fallen into this in the past, is like you're doing a refresh where you're like, oh, we just need a visual refresh of this page of this experience. So that's an easy one where you're like, yeah, of course, it looks so dated and it just would benefit from a new look and feel. But that is not meaty enough, I think, to really dig into. So what metric would indicate success here for this refresh? Um, and who are you looking to change with this update? The visual refresh thing is, is super hard. It's, I've wrestled with it a lot because 
sometimes like as a designer, you can just see that like there's a quality deficit with the product that we currently have in its current look and feel. Like especially with like in product illustrations and stuff, it can be really hard to measure right. what it is you're looking to change. And sometimes it's it's almost impossible to get something that everybody agrees on. But the act of trying to whittle it down to a problem statement, I think, will help. Do you have any examples you can provide? Uh, I think that uh, maybe a problem statement that's coming to mind for me on Trello, we maybe two or three years ago, we wanted to, to do a, a pretty radical thing for the product. Or instead of it just being a Kanban board experience, we wanted to introduce new types of views. So you could pivot the information that you're putting into Trello into a calendar, into a timeline, into a dashboard. So you're seeing the same information in a different way and hopefully getting new perspective on it and, and ultimately improving your work. And the part of the incentive here was competitive. There was a lot of competitors moving into the space, doing really cool stuff. And it was like, we need to be keeping up with everybody and, and providing people this level of functionality. The problem statement that we sort of ended up on is sort of, you know, how may we introduce these new modes of visualizing your work without sacrificing the simplicity of the product? Right. That in itself just gives you a little bit of juice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we're early stage figuring this out, you have something to sort of like hang your work on, hang the conversation around and return to when there is like, hey, we should we should do this wackadoodle view just because it's cool and some other product doesn't, it's yeah. like, hey, is this actually like sacrificing simplicity? Right. We need to now negotiate whether this is the right thing to do. One thing I wanted to talk about a little bit is your question on like, you know, what to look for in junior. I'm sort of thinking back to like me being at that time in my life. And uh, if I was to give advice to somebody who is recently graduating or, or new in their career, uh, you mentioned this to me earlier on, which is funny, but I had it written prior to this chat, which is go easy on yourself. I'm definitely the kind of person who tries to control the situation, plans ahead, all that kind of stuff. And looking back to you know where I started, you really can't predict where you go. And all you kind of got to do is like take the next step that feels right. You know, especially when you're early in your career, like being curious and chasing something down, that like all these little things that I did ended up like taking me somewhere. Like I got really into SVG animation at one point nice. just for fun. And it ended up being like the thing that helped me get a certain job because the hiring manager was like, this is so cool. Please like show me more about this. So I think that like, uh, yeah, staying curious and like following your instincts can really help you early on. And sort of allow yourself to take the path that happens to you. It can be a little scary, right? The uncertainty of that, but it kind of just is the way it happens. I mean, like I ended up going to university before I went to Humber College. And a lot of the reason why I did that was because of where my friends were going and where I felt sort of pressure to go. But it wasn't the thing that felt right. And also, I don't know if it's different now in high schools, but like, I took university courses because I was getting better grades and there was this feeling that in a college course headed towards college was not as uh, respected or like you weren't like living your potential and that I just really wish I had a different mindset on that and I wish I had gone to like OCAD or gone to Humber sooner. Not that my university degree was um, a complete like waste or anything, but I think that I did it because I felt like I had to, not because it felt right. 
And I think my creativity and my, the path that I'm on would have unlocked sooner if I just sort of like did the thing that felt, felt right. I guess we might be about the same age because I also did a BA before Humber. I think it's got something to do with the length of this program, which is two years. Mm -hmm. It attracts a lot of people who have previous education. Right. A lot of listeners, what you just said is going totally going to resonate with them because they find themselves in the same boat. What's your degree in? Business communications at Brock University. I really wanted to get into advertising when I was younger. I saw What Women Want when I was 12, which is probably not a great movie to return to. I haven't seen it in years, but they... They worked on this like campaign for Nike and I was so struck by how creative it was. And I was like, yeah, so that's what I want to do. So I just chose the university program that was closest to that world. I see. Yeah. Interesting. There's one other thing I, I wish we would have talked about, which was the boot camp thing. Because you get a lot of oh, students yeah. saying, should I do a boot camp? It's a different one for design, I think, than it is for engineering. Um, um, friend of mine was a waiter, totally happy being a waiter, took a course like a boot camp at Juno College and now is a very successful engineer. So it like does work time and time again. I've seen people do this. Design is a little bit different. I created a curriculum at Juno College and I co-taught it with oh, cool. my old manager who still works at Nascent. I love teaching that course, but it is, um, it felt like it needed more time or something about it just felt harder to like do in such a quick way. Like I think Humber, like advertising, graphic design at Humber was pretty quick. Like two years to learn what we did during that time is pretty significant. I don't think you'll get a job necessarily in UI UX if you just take a eight week course. It's just too short. If it's like in addition to prior learning, it can be really effective, but on its own is really, really hard. It, it totally depends on where you're coming from. Like if you if you're if you've done stuff like loosely in design before and you're just looking to like hone in on a specific UI UX skill, great. It could do the trick, but it uh, it's a different beast than engineering, and um, it's important to like separate those because the success stories in engineering are real, and I think it's more mixed in some of these other disciplines. Right. And you mean software engineering? I think software engineering. Yeah, that's right. Because I've never taken one. I've never taught in one. I've never, I don't know anything about them, but I, and I hear really mixed feedback. And I guess that's the other thing, like which boot camp? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We know Juno is a good one. That's good to know. I, I would recommend it. It's a great school. But yeah, definitely, I think you're right. The intention you set going into it is critical. With design, I would caution thinking that you will get a job as soon as you come out of this in design. It's just treated as a course leveling up your skill set that could take you somewhere desirable where you want to go, but it's not like a guarantee like it is in software engineering. That's not a guarantee. That's the wrong thing to say, but it just feels more like there's a higher success rate, I should say. Right. You know, it's kind of interesting because people look at uh, software and they're like, oh, there's like a, such a sharp learning curve. But I actually think people really underestimate the learning curve for design mm -hmm. because it's like you make one pretty thing and it's like, oh, this person is a great designer, but it's like, no. I <laughs> totally agree with that. I think especially in UI UX, at larger companies, you're often leveraging an existing design system. So it's kind of about fitting the pieces together and then telling the story around it than it is about building something new. And on my teams, like I'm usually one of the only or one of the few people who have like visual design skills. A lot of people are more like systems oriented and um, and like UXy, where they just like can understand and break down a flow versus like make it look visual and and appealing so 
man i mean thank you uh, this has been this has been really good um it's, it's also just like nice on personal level to to talk to you like it's great conversation yeah thank you so much for reaching out and uh i think this is a really cool thing that you're doing i'm sure your students really appreciate it and uh i mean for me i really enjoyed this and also like these kind of things give you an opportunity to focus on what you believe in and the things you care about and it's just in the like short amount of time leading up to this it was nice to think a little bit on where i was at when i started what i care about now and all that stuff so thanks eric thanks mark bye